Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Danielle, really nice to meet you. Thanks so much for taking some time to come on the show. Looking forward to the chat. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I am delighted. And you know, we always like to get this show started with some background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you are doing at the current moment. Yeah, so I grew up in Wisconsin um, on a rural town, country farm, Um, always was outside playing. My parents did a lot of things by hand, um, especially being on the farm, you know, being resourceful in that. So we did all of our landscaping. I was involved with that with my mom. I was kind of her little helper to do the planting, the weeding, all that fun stuff. And I came to Milwaukee for architectural design and decided that buildings may not be my true calling. I wanted to get back outside. Um, so I then did a joint degree with conservation and took those two merged them together to do uh, landscape design work and worked with a couple different conventional landscapers. Um, Some of them had a native landscape component to them, um, but most of them were, you know, your traditional mow and blow, weeding, spraying chemicals. Um, So I decided that I needed to take a different route um, mentally (laughs) and um, probably physically a little bit too. So I decided to take the plunge and start my own business that is focused solely on installing native plants and managing our natural landscapes and removing invasive species, things like that, and and just getting more natives on the landscape. I love it all. But like, why, what prompted you to take the plunge? Was it that there was nothing there that was like as appealing that you're like, oh, there's nothing, no one doing what I want to do. I got to do it. Or was there, did you see like a niche that was, that you wanted to fill or something like that? Um, yeah. So when I, when I was with other companies, I realized that nobody really knew what a native plant was that I was working with. Like my first job right out of college, I got, um, and I got the opportunity to take care of a LEED certified property. So like that was native landscaping, but everyone that I worked with, they thought I was just like playing out in the prairies, not really doing anything. So nobody understood what I was doing um, and why I was doing what I was doing, um, why I was restoring these landscapes, why I was getting rid of certain invasive species and trying to promote other ones. So it was just really starting to take a beating on my, my mental health. <laughs> and um, so I, joined the group called the wild ones Uh, they have three chapters in milwaukee and they actually started in milwaukee in wisconsin with laureato back in the 70s when ddt and all that fun stuff was going on Um, and they promote natural landscapes and talking to people there and, and seeing the fact that there's three chapters in milwaukee there's obviously people who wanted to do native landscaping. And that's what sparked me to say, hey, maybe I can do this. I can help these people maybe place the plants a little bit more organized. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of it for me too is also just playing and experimenting with the plants and the palette that I choose. Um, but giving them a little bit more guidance. And so then that was where I was like, yeah, I could probably do this. And my husband was a huge 
push. <laughs> I was a lot of self-doubt. And he's like, you got this, like you can do this for a living. Like, it's fine. Like I'm here and, and very supportive. So I think he was more of the, I'm going to push you to do this. <laughs> and I was like, I guess I'm doing it. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I started. And um, the university, UW-Milwaukee, where I started, I had great mentors there. I took care of those native landscapes, like the rain gardens. Um, and so I had a lot of great mentors there that were kind of pushing me as well and, and giving me support. So before you started your own venture, you were specifically working with like a traditional landscaping company where they would go out and work for private clients. Is that right? Or, or what? Yeah. So my first job was with um, a company that they had a lot of commercial properties and also residential. Um, I was kind of more on the commercial end, um, basically because they this project that I was on was a native landscape restoration project. Um, but I also did some residential properties with them. And then I was at another company that was kind of the same. So they were just more eager traditional, like your cultivars that you see in a lot of the garden centers, turf grass everywhere, <laughs> um, spraying it, keeping it pristine, um, weed free, all that, you know, fun stuff. Yeah. I mean, I don't know anything about like landscaping work I've never done it my dad was always on my case he's like Ethan you gotta mow the lawn and I'm like dad like lawns are stupid I don't want to mow the lawn so I'm like wondering if you could shed a little bit of light on how like the landscaping industry really works like overall whether it's like residential or more like commercial side yeah it's a shrub three feet another shrub three feet another <laughs> shrub um a bunch of mulch you know, every spring putting down a new two inches of mulch, if not more, um, planting trees just kind of haphazardly, in my opinion. Sometimes they're designed and not that there's not good designs out there. Um, it just wasn't my style. Um, and when we start spraying chemicals on our lawn and on our plants, you know, to prevent any damage to the plant, we know we don't want anything eating it, um, things like that that is what hurts our native pollinators, our native wildlife, insects, and insects are the bottom of the food chain. Like without them, and this is finally coming out into mainstream news, um, without them, we, we don't exist. Um, so we really need to give them back food that they need and stop killing them because yes, there might be a pest out there that we want to get rid of, but when we spray, a lot of these chemicals are killing everything. So we're spraying the good guys along with the bad guys. And then we just kind of wipe everything out. So that's kind of what a lot of the conventional landscapers are doing and, and just putting in turf grass because they think it's low maintenance. And I think it's because it's unskilled maintenance. You just throw a person on a mower and tell them not to run into a tree or go into a pond. <laughs> and that's what they do. Um, where something like with me, you know, you have to be knowledgeable on your plants and your, your management and using different types of chemicals. And we use them very specifically for specific things. So there's a lot more knowledge in it, but you get better landscapes, in my opinion. So I'm a very positive person. I'm all about affirmation and saying, thank you for what you're doing. Of course, I love what you're doing and we're going to get into it. Um, but I hate turf grass. I, I can't deny it. Um, it seems like such a waste of resources. Turf grass is, is this green European UK grass, right? That's what turf grass is. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering what you what your thoughts are. I call it long grass. What what your thoughts are on on long grass? Because it's just I I don't see any benefit, honestly. Yeah, it's a status symbol. Um, the reason we have it in the first place was because people thought it helped to keep. Um, well, first, it was a status symbol. If you had all this land that you didn't need for a garden and because you were so wealthy, you could buy your vegetables other places. You didn't have to have um, animals, livestock, anything like that. So you you were wealthy. You could just look at this land and not use it for anything. Um, and kind of the second reason was it. they thought with having shorter vegetation, you didn't have the rodents, the mice, the those types of things coming into your house, um, which is probably true. But if you, you know, destroy their landscape somewhere else, they're going to move in no matter what. Um, so those were kind of the reasons why we got turf grass in America in the beginning. And I... My, my thought has changed and I think I'm changing a lot of people's thought and a lot of people's thought are changing, especially, you know, out in Colorado and the drier regions. It's such a waste of resources. We're putting fresh potable water on our lawn that we're then going to contaminate with chemicals and exhaust fumes and everything. Um, in the Midwest, I think it's harder for people to get rid of it because we don't have those water issues yet. Um, I think we will eventually get there. Um, There are places in Wisconsin that already do have aquifers being depleted and we just, you know, kind of need to start thinking longer term and not at the last minute, what are we going to do with these things? Um, But yeah, it's, it's a waste. Um, It's not helping climate change. It's not helping the environment. It's not providing any habitat for those insects. Like I mentioned earlier, Um, we cut it so short that we kill it pretty much by mid-season because it is a cool season grass. Um, So it only likes those 60 to 70 degree temperatures. And, you know, a lot of us are getting above that now as we continue to warm. So it has its place. Um, it is nice because we can do a lot of foot traffic on it. Um, so using it as pathways, but there's other plants too that we can use instead that provide at least like, you know, clover isn't necessarily my favorite either. Cause that's still not a native. Um, but at least it has a flower that something is going to, uh, either a honeybee or some of our native bees will use it, but it at least has a flower. So it has a nectar source for something, um, Turf grass has nothing because we cut it down before the seeds even get to develop. So nothing's using that. Oh, it's so nice talking to someone who's put a lot of thought into <laughs> this. Um, I walk past the grass at the park when the sprinklers are going. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. could imagine myself like filling up a giant cup of water. And then just you continue doing that for 30 minutes. It's just mind blowing to me, the resource um, usage. Anyways, um, would you mind telling me kind of how the how your, your company is called Native Roots LLC? Is that right? Yep. And how it has um, evolved from the origin to where you're at now and what's your mission and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So when we when I first started it um, in 2019, it was just myself doing all the work. Um, I, I have always kind of worked by myself and I kind of enjoy that because I hold myself to a high standard. Um, And so it was just kind of easier if I was the only one to blame and not um, other people. And I've gotten better with that as I've progressed because I want to help people. And there's too many people out there that want help doing this. So I have hired um, multiple staff, mostly seasonal, mostly college students, because when I was in college in summer, there 
unless I just wasn't finding them, but there wasn't a lot of opportunities for conservation or environmental science students to get their hands dirty with doing field work. Um, or they were just given a backpack sprayer and you had to spray all summer, which then deters them from doing this as a career. And we need more people who are willing to do the grunt work, the physical work. Otherwise, we're just never going to get rid of or at least decrease the amount of invasives. Um, so I started with doing, um, helping a lot of the wild ones. Um, I started doing presentations and informational talks to people, gardening groups. Um, there's master gardener organizations in Wisconsin that I've talked to. Um, a lot of the nonprofit you know, nature centers, um, reaching out for them, just kind of giving them information on native plants. I mean, there's a lot of more educated people out there too that are giving a lot of talks, um, but I just kind of, you know, gave whatever information I had kind of was the stepping stone. Um, and so I got a lot of clients that way, a lot of or, um, residential people. And then now as we're getting more popular, um, we're kind of getting more people with larger properties. So not just small urban um, properties that are half acre or less, we're doing multiple acre restoration projects. So buckthorn removal um, in woodlands and doing a lot of invasive species on uh, larger five plus acre properties, which is a lot of fun because those have a lot of remnant plants in them as well. So it's exciting to see what comes back after you get the invasives out of there and you can kind of see what you're protecting. And I think that's important for my clients as well as my staff to see like, you know, we're not just doing this just because it's an invasive plant. We're doing it because of all these other plants and all the wildlife that we see while we're doing it, um, which we also see in urban landscapes too, when we do the installation. I mean, you know, planting some of these plants and then there's a flower and a monarch comes by and my crew's like all excited because, you know, there's a monarch in a uh, wasteland basically. Um, so I think that's really cool for them to see and the clients to see as well. Definitely. Can you explain this idea of like a microclimate? Yeah. So microclimate is anywhere that has a different sunlight level, moisture level, um, wind velocity, anything that's different from its adjacent um, location. So, and it can be any size. There's no like minimum or maximum. Um, what I like about our houses, as much as they kind of have destroyed the landscape and stuff, we have created microclimates with each building. So on the north side, you have a shady, moist space where you can put your woodland plants. And then on the south side, we have the hot sun coming in. It's usually drier. Um, unless you have a tree, it's full sun, things like that. So we can then plant different species there. Um, and if, even if you think about, you know, turf grass is a microclimate compared to uh, underneath a tree canopy. Um, so it's just kind of different sunlight levels, different moisture. Um, and it just allows you to get a higher diversity of plants, especially in our urban areas where, you know, we can't have these large tracts of I don't want to say not monocultures, but the same community of plants, um, we can then create a little bit more diversity using those. Yeah. I mean, we generally as a trend, uh, more diversity is better with something to do with genes and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And on that, on that idea a little bit, you've mentioned uh, the term invasive several times. So I'm wondering what is so important about having native species on our landscapes compared to these invasive ones? 
Invasive plants are species that originated somewhere else. So a lot of our invasive species are coming from Europe. And most of that is because most of us are from Europe. Um, we also get a lot of Asian and just, and some of them were intentionally brought over here. Buckthorn was brought over to be a hedge species and it is dense and it gives you privacy. Um, so I see why they brought it over. But what has happened is these Invasive species have not co-evolved with our native insects in America. So what happens is like a monarch, for example, a lot of people know what a monarch is. Um, it's a butterfly and they can only feed on milkweed species. So anything in the milkweed family. So when you start losing those species, those monarch caterpillars can no longer eat any other plant. And so when we bring in all these exotic species and they start to overpopulate our natives and um, um, take them out, we then get a monoculture of exotic plants that none of our insects, none of our wildlife can use. And therefore we have a blank landscape at that point. Um, so when we don't have those diverse habitats, we're losing our wildlife, we're losing our pollinators, our um, caterpillars, our bird species, all of it just kind of a, a, a tumbling effect and snowball effect then at that point. Um, so we want to keep our native plants here. We want to keep a good diversity. And the reason the exotics take over is because they don't have any of their um, predators whether that's a plant competition or an, an insect from Europe, they, we don't have those here. So nothing is keeping them in check. Our native insects are all kind of in a checks and balance. So they are keeping each other in line. And that's why we don't have an overabundance of some of our butterflies or dragonflies or anything like that is because there's something else eating them. But when you bring them to another continent, um, then it just kind of all goes out of control because nobody can recognize each other anymore and they don't know that this is also a food source. To them, it could be a rubber tire and, you know, we wouldn't eat that. So so when you're talking about invasives, you're, are you, you're specifically talking about plants, aren't you? Because I feel like when most people talk about invasive species, they're thinking of like the dung beetle or, or whatever, like something that comes in and like eats everything. But I mean, I guess plants do the same thing, but it seems like you're, you're specifically talking about plants, aren't you? Yep. So I specifically usually deal with invasive plant species. Um, and the reason that I kind of go after that is that if we get rid of the invasive plant species, we're then promoting the native plant species and plants are the basis of all life. They are the only thing that can convert sunlight into food. Um, but there are a lot of insects and a lot of other larger things that are invasive. Um, uh, we taught, like, I think, I don't know if it was Australia, but somewhere like cats are invasive there, domestic cats, and they're killing all of the ground nesting birds. Rats um, have been a huge thing too. So there are other problems, but yeah, we're specifically focusing on invasive plants. Yeah. So is there any way that plants that don't come, uh, that aren't native could just be like foreign, foreign foreigners, like, hey, we're coming and we're actually making a positive impact? Or do they all, are they all categorized as invasive or can some of them actually improve soil health and land quality over like the long term potentially? Yeah, I don't, I can't speak to whether or not they can improve our quality of the landscape or the soil. Um, not all of them are invasive. So there's kind of a couple terms, you know, I use invasive as a plant that is not original to um, 
the United States or to the Midwest and Wisconsin where I am. Um, and then it came from somewhere else. And then there's exotic, which is another species that came from another continent. But as of right now, it has not taken over anything. It doesn't spread. It doesn't go into our natural areas and just kind of take over and outcompete all of our native veg vegetation. And then there's native plants that coexist um, that are from, have evolved here um, and have been here for tens of thousands of years. And there's also aggressive plants. And I use aggressive talking about our native plants that are kind of bullies. Um, some people call them thugs. You know, they, they are opportunistic. You know, there's nothing wrong with having them in the landscape, but they are more aggressive. They will kind of outcompete other species. So we also keep some of those in check. Um, one example is Canada goldenrod. And the reason a lot of these species are aggressive um, is because they're taking our, we have messed up our soils so much, especially in urban areas, that they're just opportunistic. They're pioneer species. So they thrive in kind of those crappy soils that humans have moved around, have from, you know, construction work and things like that. So they, they're just doing what they do. They're the primary species. And if we let them, they would eventually fade out and more diverse, more unique plants would move in. But that's just, it takes too long and humans are impatient. <laughs> um, I'm, I was just wondering before as well, are, are pesticides uh, like carbon based as well? Are they made from like fossil fuels or are they made just from the chemicals? I think a lot of them now are made from organic compounds. Okay. Um, so most of them, and again, I can't say for a hundred percent sure. Of most course, of them of I course. think are organic carbon based, um, but I don't know. Um, and a lot of them, they have just different chemical makeups, but I think most of them are organic compounds to some extent. Yeah. It seems like everywhere I look, everything's made out of oil somehow, some magical yeah. <laughs> way. Um, so would you mind telling me a bit about the what the native roots process typically looks like for a customer? And I was wondering your ideas on how you know, like by looking at the land and observing it, like what it truly like wants to be and how to create life and make it flourish. Yeah, so we start out with a site visit. We walk the property with the client and just kind of see what they have going on. Um, I talk about, you know, have you tried plants? What has worked for you? What hasn't? Because if they've already tried, especially with native plants that just haven't worked on their property, then that eliminates my trial and error sometimes. Um, and so I can just skip over those species that I already know that the client has not had success with. Um, so we just kind of talk, you know, what do they want? Do they have a goal of, I want to have pollinators, I want to have monarchs in my yard? Then, you know, that kind of sets up the palette of plants that I select from. If they're like, I don't really care, I just want to support wildlife in general, then that gives me kind of free reign to do whatever I want um, and, and kind of use those microclimates for what was maybe more historically here on the landscape. Um, in urban areas, I don't stick as tightly to um, what was in the area. I just kind of do basically Midwest or Wisconsin-based native plants um, that may not have been here historically in this eco-region. E um, but once I start doing more restoration projects where it's an established woodland, we have mature canopy trees, um, but maybe the understory tree canopy isn't doing as well, then I'm going to look more specifically at what species are here and look into what was 
what should be here, what was part of the um, the surveys that were done in the, I think it was the 70s that John Curtis did a survey of Wisconsin and he went through the entire state and wrote down, these are the species um, that were here. He might've been a little bit earlier too, I'm not exactly sure his his timeline, but he gave us a kind of this the template of what species were here pre human mucking up everything. Um, so that kind of is what I would look at for that. And if there's someone in an urban environment who says, I, I want to stay as native as possible to what was here pre, you know, human um, industrialization, I will. But again, we have bucked up our soils that sometimes I just have to go with the hardiest natives that I know are going to make it. Um, and in Southeast Wisconsin, we have very dense clay um, from Lake Michigan and, and the pre-lake that used to be here um, before the glaciation. So, you know, we have tough soils to deal with here, whereas once you get further out west um, of the state, they have more sandy, rocky soils. So that kind of picks the plant palette too. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what like your particular goal is with this project. So if I were like, hey, Danielle, I've got three acres of land. You can do whatever your heart wants to do. I'm just wondering, like, how, how would you go about something like that? What are you trying to accomplish? Diversity is the number one thing. Um, so if you have a large area, I might do like different plant communities and then create a walking path through them so that you can actually go out and explore them. Um, and see what wildlife is using it, um, creating my own microclimates, you know, putting in trees and shrubs. Um, a lot of people forget about our shrub layer. And I think that's partly because of, um, you know, fear, you know, we want to have that open view. So we want the, tr the tall tree and the short grass. We want to be able to see what's over there, but then we put up a fence and it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> Um, shrub layer is kind of one thing that I try to put in because a lot of our bird species nest in that layer. Um, so if we don't have shrub species, we don't have those birds that are able to nest there. Um, I also look at using host plants. And what that means is, again, like going back to the monarch caterpillar, um, they can only eat milkweed. There's a lot of different insects that have co-evolved with one specific plant, and that's the only plant that they can eat. Um, Turtlehead and Baltimore checker spot is another example. But then we also have species like oak trees that pr um, provide food source for over a hundred or 500 different um, insects and different caterpillars. So we can kind of, you know, manipulate it that way. But I'm just trying to get diversity back in the landscape. And I'm not so some people are really tight on saying like, we have to go back and keep this. If this is an oak savanna, we have to keep it an oak savanna. And I just, sometimes I'm like, if, it, if there's native plants in here and it's starting to go into like more of a forest type setting, just let it. And like, let's just keep the diversity in there because we can't keep things static. Um, if that's one thing that we can take away as a human species is things are changing. Landscapes always change we can just foster them and try to keep the diversity up. And, you know, we might lose some species in a couple of years because temperatures get too hot, but we, we can't predict the future. So when a lot of people are planting Southern species in Wisconsin that are native, 
I, I, I get a little hesitant because I'm like, well, we don't know exactly what the climate is going to be, but these plants are resilient. So like, let's just keep it as it is. Let's start doing other things <laughs> to prevent climate change that we can control um, emissions and things like that. And, and let's just let the plants do what they're doing. I mean, they're, they're resilient, they're tough guys, but we need to use the native plants. Certainly. And when I hear words like foster, stewardship, I love the idea of regeneration and I love the idea of building a regenerative economy. I'm big on the idea of service, which you might call um, providing love to people, whatever it is. I think love, you know, the whole idea of love is, is um, caring for someone other than yourself or bringing more life into the world. I just, I, I love these ideas. And I'm wondering how you personally feel when you're out there for days or weeks, whatever it is, and you're actually personally responsible for seeing native wildlife return to an area that might've been completely degraded. What's it like? How do you feel when you're doing this work? Uh, I probably get a little too excited, <laughs> um, especially if it's like a new, a unique thing that I find. Um, like, for example, I live in Metro Milwaukee. Um, we have about a third of an acre. When we bought the house six years ago, it was basically just turf grass. Um, I think my husband was excited because he's like, yeah, hey, I have a lawn to mow now. And I was like, no, we have a space to plant plants. Um, and I've gotten him on board. And so now every year he's like, where are we going to expand our beds now? But I just get super excited when things come in. I've been keeping a tally of things that I can identify. Um, I take pictures. I take way too many pictures. Um, and I just, I look at the insects. Um, usually, like sometimes I'll be looking out our window, especially when COVID hit and we were all working from home. Like I was basically my cat and I was just like sit and stare out the window and watch all the flowers. And a couple times, like a, a new butterfly species would be in the yard. I was like, I gotta go grab my camera and I'd run outside and go take pictures of it and just watch it and observe it. Um, the rusty patch bumblebee is a newly enlisted for endangered species. I had one of those in my yard one day and I freaked out, um, especially in, I've seen it on a couple of my clients' properties. Um, I quick get all this crew together and I tell them to look at it and watch it and how to identify them. Um, I've been working with my parents to restore some of their land and, you know, we put fire to the ground on their woodland that had not seen fire for decades and the flush of native spring ephemerals and wildflowers that came up after we did that was amazing. Um, and they were just, they were there, they were just waiting for, you know, that heat to kickstart something and, and to remove all the, the old debris that was on the soil. Um, so I, it just, it's, it gives me hope when we see things return, um, especially, you know, every year I have new stuff coming into my landscape. I have clients who are emailing me pictures and sending me photos of, Hey, this is something new that was here. And like, that gives me excitement because I know that they are then in the landscape. They are passionate about it as well. And they are getting excited. And that's, that's what I want because, if, if you're not excited about it, you're not going to save it. And that's why I try to do my talks and show my excitement and be a little over the top too, because those are the talks that I love to listen to. And so I think that that then resonates with people who are watching me and hopefully urges them to do the same thing and to, to start at least looking at their landscape. Even if you plant just a tiny little patch of native plants, 
just watch it and observe it and and see what's visiting it because I guarantee you once you see a couple monarchs flying through or other butterflies or bees you're gonna want to plant more yeah I don't know when when you accept who you are like me you can never be too excited I don't <laughs> it's good to have passion in what you do that's I could just tell right away before even meeting you that that that, that was the case I'm wondering if there's anyone else like any other companies you're aware of that are doing anything similar to you yeah, there's quite a few, um, especially now that it's gotten out, I think, the importance and gotten a little more mainstream of how native plants can benefit everybody, um, not just a bee or a you know random little insect that's threatened or endangered. Um, it, it has become more common. There's podcasts that I listen to, a lot of East Coast people, um, Native Plant Podcast is one of them. Um, they kind of inspired me too to start doing something because they have been doing this for years and maybe even decades. And so they were kind of always probably doing a lot more of the battle of getting it to become accepted um, than I did. I kind of, I think, got in at the right time <laughs> when it kind of exploded. Um, a lot of my colleagues that I have worked with at other restoration companies, we have all gone off and started our own native thing. So that's nice because that helps us break up the area and say, I'm too busy to take this on. You're a little bit out of my range, but go talk to this person. I know they'll take care of you. Um, and so that's, that's nice to have colleagues and friends. And I think we don't see each other as competition. We see each other as assistance. So if one of us is down on the crew and they have time I know that a lot of them would come and help me. Um, one of my buddies, you know, we worked on a couple projects each year. He does like, he has um, stonework and like hardscaping experience. So if I have an idea or the client wants to do that, I usually bring him in because I know he's going to source material properly and, you know, respect the landscape. And then he even gives me some ideas too of things that I can improve on in the the softscape or the plant selection so it's we're collaborators um we're not competition like i think a lot of the conventional landscapers see other landscape companies yeah and i think that's great and i i wonder how far we can take that idea of collaboration because it seems to be a nice solution to the lot of a lot of the issues that we do face but of course i still believe in competition and trying to be the best you can possibly be but I, it seems to me there is a way to bring that into a more collaborative sense rather than being very cutthroat so yeah i mean thanks for sharing i'm wondering how responsible you think homeowners in particular are for the health of our planet and what kind of incentives they might have to actually want to provide for like native species and wildlife in the area? Homeowners play a huge role. Um, if you haven't heard Doug Tallamy speak yet, I highly recommend you look him up. He is a, a entomologist, um, a plant guy from out in Maryland or Del somewhere out in the East Coast. Um, and he has kind of been my inspiration. I have a lot of inspiration, I guess, but he, he talks super passionately about insects and it's kind of a funny thing, but once you get excited about them, then you get really excited about them. And so he has been leading the way, I think, as a, a recent person, at least in getting native plants back into the landscape. And he has started Homegrown National Park, which 
he talks about, you know, we have so much land in private ownership and that land, most of it is turf grass. And so his goal is to get um, 20 million acres of private property planted with native plants. And I've been trying to push that. I've told my clients about it. I've bought all of his books and pushed those too, just to get people excited. Because if you can, and, and the 20 million acres is if you plant half of your land or half of your turf grass in native plants. So you're not even giving up all of your turf grass. You know, you can still have the patch or the you know front yard if you want and just put the native plants in the back. Um, if you're worried about HOA or neighbor looks, um, I'm not. So my front yard's just loaded with native plants. And <laughs> you can tell I'm the only one in the neighborhood who does it, but I'm also the only one who's out there looking at them too um, and enjoying my front yard and my landscape. So if we can start getting rid of turf grass, I think that's going to be huge and we need to do it on the homeowner level. Um, turf grass does not store carbon. It has like an inch or two of roots. Native plants have three feet or more. Um, trees have a lot more root mass as well. And so that's where we store the carbon. That's where we take it out of the, uh, the air and get it back into the ground, get it back to where it was um, pre-industrial revolution in, in the oil reserves. We're not gonna create oil by any means by doing this, but at least we're getting it out of the atmosphere. We're getting more carbon or more oxygen back in and we're providing habitat. Um, and the roots are also helping to absorb water. So our storms are getting more intense with climate change. So if we can start having our, our water stay on our property, disconnecting our downspouts, doing rain barrels, doing rain gardens, um, storing that water on site, getting it back into the ground to recharge our aquifers. This is all stuff that, and you don't have to be, it doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be a huge infrastructure build out like a lot of you know commercial companies have to do or subdivisions, like just planting native plants. It's all you have to do. If you're already a gardener, just switch your palate up a little bit. You don't even have to like cut cold turkey or quit cold turkey, you know, and get rid of all of your plants that are non-native. Um, but just getting more native plants in the ground is going to help. Definitely. And I, I don't like to end on a, a, a more like disturbing note, but I'm really concerned by the decrease in insect biomass that's happened over the last 20 years. I think it's like I'm not a st statistician, but it's it's a, like a staggering like 70% of insects have disappeared in the last like 20 years. So I'm wondering if you, what your thoughts are on how to bring them back. Is it specifically this native plant strategy or are there other things that we can do? I, I think the native plants is where to start. I mean, that's why I'm native roots. We're starting at the roots. Um, that's kind of the basis of life. Um, and if we have the native plants and the plants that these insects need, that is definitely going to be a start. Um, also, you know, if you do have lawn, if you don't mow it so short, um, or if you keep one area longer and let it be a natural area with more um, debris that's left over, whether that's, you know, putting a, all your sticks that fall out of your tree into a pile uh, or just leaving the grass longer, then insects can can hang out in there. And that's where they're, you know, a lot of our insects will spend some part of their life cycle 
in the ground, um, whether it's in their pupa stage or their larval stage. So if we can stop mowing our lawn and give them that habitat, that will give them the ability to get to their next life stage. Um, And also stop like using pesticides is one thing, but especially insecticides. I think the, the downfall of insecticides is they're so readily available at Home Depot and these big box stores that a homeowner could misidentify the insect pest and buy the wrong thing and wipe out a bunch of beneficials, or they just keep trying because they don't know what they're targeting or getting the right materials. So that is a little scary to me, um, just as I learned more about the pesticide, herbicide, all that stuff is just, you know, how easy it is as a, a homeowner and someone who has no background knowledge can just go out and just buy the stuff and just dump it um, onto their landscape. So if we stop doing that, we're going to, you know, we have beneficial insects out there that will kill your pests, will kill your aphids on your vegetable garden. Um, We just need to get them back into your landscape and using flowers, native plants will attract those guys. You'll get lady beetles um, back in your landscape to eat the the insects um, that are damaging your plant material and stop being afraid of bees and wasps. Yes, they can sting you, but if you leave them alone, they're not going to bother you. I think I've been stung like twice in my life. One was when I stepped on one that was in my house um, when I was really little. And the other one, like I squished it in my arm. Obviously it's going to sting me, but I spend 90% of my summer (laughs) out with the bees, with the wasps, and they don't bother me. Um, They are more interested in finding their prey. And sometimes that's your pest is what they're after. So if you start to love them and tolerate them in your landscape and don't reach for the raid every time you see them. Um, And sometimes you do. I mean, I get it. They're on your house or something, but um, we don't need to completely eliminate them from our, our ecosystem that's at our house. Yeah, again, co-benefits, collaboration, we could extend that out to the insect family as well, mm-hmm. except for the horse flies and the mosquitoes. I don't I don't I don't <laughs> like them. But uh, I do well, like you. you gotta, huh? You got to attract the dragonflies that will then eat the mosquitoes and the bats. And so, you know, it's it's a checks and balances. And we as humans tend to interfere with that. And we don't wait for the checks to come in to balance things out. But yes, mosquitoes are a pain in the butt. Yellow jackets are a pain in the butt. There are a few insects that I'm not a fan of, but we can still tolerate them in the landscape because they are providing something for someone else. That's a fair point. And uh, Danielle, it's, it's been great having you. I appreciate everything you're doing. I think your company is really cool. Obviously, I love talking to entrepreneurs. I'm curious, any advice you have for young people who are passionate about you know, creating a better world or maybe starting their own little side project? Just try to find what you're passionate for. I mean, if you would have talked to me 10 years ago, I've been like, yeah, I'm a landscaper. Like I deadhead flowers and pull weeds. Like I, I would not be the same personality. Um, and it takes time. You're, you know, right out of college, you're not going to know what you want to do. Um, so explore, experiment, um, talk with different people. Networking is huge. 
Um, there's a lot of clubs out there and groups. Um, if I would have known about the wild ones when I was in school, I probably would have joined them sooner and maybe found my passion a little bit earlier. Um, but networking is also huge because that has inspired me by watching other people find their passion and explain their passion and share it. Um, that has helped me find out what I want to do. Um, so just, yeah, explore, find something and whatever you find, just go all in. Um, I know some things there, you know, we, we need money and a lot of things, especially in the conservation field, there's not a lot of great paying jobs out there. Um, and hopefully that will change, um, as we continue to evolve and, and get into more responsibility of, of climate change and everything, but, um, just, yeah, just try to find your passion and, and, and get on with it and, and, and embrace it. Don't try, do it. It's possible. Yes. I a hundred percent, I a hundred percent attest to it. And I did not know what I wanted to do when I got out of college. It was introspection that led me to climate change realty. And Danielle, it's been an absolute delight having you on the podcast today. Yeah. Thank you. It was a joy. You're welcome. All right, everybody. See you soon. Bye. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.